So, Sheil, can you present your patient? Sure. So this is a 78-year-old African-American male, World War II veteran, a retired college professor who presented with weight loss, about 25-pound weight loss, loss of appetite, marked abdominal distension and discomfort, and his hemoglobin was 8.7. On exam, he had this large abdominal mass extending from the left upper quadrant to the right lower quadrant, and a CAT scan showed that he had an 18-centimeter mass extending from the inferior aspect of the stomach all the way across the pelvis. He saw a gastroenterologist, and there was a mass that he saw in the fundus of the stomach, which revealed gist, and I saw him around that time. He had a PET-CT scan, and he was started on a matinib. He was very sick. He had a previous history of some heart disease, hypertension, and looked very ill. A week later, he was markedly better. The mass was significantly smaller on exam, and his pain was gone, and his hemoglobin started to climb. And by the end of six weeks, his hemoglobin was up to 11 and had normalized beyond 12 by week 8. He'd put on 20 pounds, and he had another PET-CT scan, I believe, around four months or so, and all the areas of hypermetabolism had resolved, and he had a residual 7-centimeter mass. So he continued on imatinib at the 400 milligram dose, and he had subsequent scans, was feeling well, but there was a slight drop in his hemoglobin, and there was a 2.5 centimeter area of hypermetabolism in this abdominal mass on the PET-CT. I practiced in New York, suburban New York, and he was also evaluated at a medical center in Upper Manhattan on the east side. And the recommendation was to increase the dose of imatinib to 600 milligrams, which was done. And on that, he felt okay, but there was a further drop in his hemoglobin. And he had another scan, which by around 26 months, this mass was larger. And this was around the time that sunitinib was just approved and had come on the market. And there was talk, in fact, putting him on that study, but the drug got approved. And he was placed on sunitinib. He had developed liver disease by that time and actually got four rounds of sunitinib on the classic approved dose and tolerated it poorly. What kind of problems did he have? He had actually surprisingly problems with neutropenia and had some diarrhea, which he thought was from the drug and did not have any problems with his hypertension and actually progressed. I could tell he wasn't responding and subsequently passed. Chuck? It's interesting to me, I was waiting for you to say that the possibility of surgery had entered the fray. It was considered initially, and the feeling was that when he had first presented, he had disease. There was this large mass, and then there were some other areas that lit up in the abdomen, and I wasn't quite sure that he was a true surgical candidate. Well, I was going to actually say that I think you made the right decision, albeit for other reasons. I mean, he clearly wasn't a great candidate, but there's been a lot of recent data on salvage surgery in the setting of TKI failures and it doesn't work very well. A number of series from a number of different institutions have showed that, that either it looks like it'll be a really easy surgery, but when they get in there, there's a lot of trouble, tip of the iceberg in terms of disease, or they rapidly, systemically relapse. And so I'm glad you didn't suggest surgery, and I wouldn't have offered surgery anyway. But this sort of new nodule within a mass is obviously a very big problem, and it seems like it'd be a chip shot just to get that out, but it doesn't work. So, so Nitinib, after a dose increase of a mass, it was clearly the right thing to do. Can you talk a little bit about the spectrum of what has been seen in the trials of sunitinib, both in terms of efficacy and side effects? It's a very strange drug, and people are very afraid of it, at least outside of the renal cell world. In my experience, and I've used a fair bit of it, it's either 
unbelievably well tolerated or people feel like they are going to die and actually refuse to take it knowing they will die of their gist. And they do get this unbelievable asthenia as well as all the classic side effects on top of that too. But it's not all that well tolerated, but certainly it's well tolerated enough that if they have no other options, it's worth trying. I myself do not use the 50 milligram dose for four weeks, two weeks. I do the 37 and a half continuously that Dr. Dimitri and Dr. George's group showed is probably equally effective. And I've had a lot better luck with it. What's your take on the anti-tumor effect? Well, we know that there aren't a lot of responses. I think it was either 7 or 8% on the original trial. But we know there's a clear benefit on progression-free survival. And we know from the imatinib studies that achieving stable disease in terms of how long you live is every bit as good as achieving an actual response. Those curves are virtually superimposable on survival. So the fact that sunitinib can get the gist to stop growing actually means something. But if you have somebody who's very symptomatic from bulk disease and you think you're going to give them sunitinib and they're going to get better because it shrinks, it's not going to happen. What's being looked at right now in terms of new systemic approaches, for example, combinations, new agents? Can you talk about where we're at with that? Well, the logical combination, of course, would be sunitinib and imatinib. And again, because of the toxicity of sunitinib, people have been afraid to do that. But Jordan Berlin at Vanderbilt has finally bitten the bullet and is looking at it. But there's actually been very little upfront use of sunitinib in just... Probably the drug that is furthest along is nilotinib, or AMN-107, which is kind of a super Gleevec, if you will. And it looked promising both alone and in combination in early trials. And so now there's a phase three randomized placebo-controlled trial, basically, that looks at nilotinib. In combination with imatinib? There's actually some studies in combination and some by itself, and they're trying to figure out what the best way to use it is. The other weird thing that just reminds me, you know, when you fail full fox with colon cancer. You don't continue to use full fox thinking it's slowing the disease even if it's not helping it. But just as really, really different. And when we get people who have then failed sunitinib and have, say they can't go to a trial, there's nothing else to offer them, a lot of times we do go back on imatinib. And the analogy I've heard is it's kind of like a parking brake on a moving car. It's not going to stop it, but it's going to slow it down a little bit. And I will say that if you take people off all TKIs, they rapidly die. And if you put them back on a matinub, they sort of just continue to progress and die over a few months to a year. But What about bevacizumab? So the Bev, there's a lot of rationale, in my opinion, and in the interest of disclosure, I'm going to be running the next phase three trial that uses it. There's been some recent data just published that looks like VEGF is even more important than we originally thought five years ago. So the trial that's going to look at a matinub with or without Bev should be opening within the next month or so. But I wouldn't just do it off study. What do we know about Bev and GIST in terms of clinical research data? Not much. We know it's safe, and of course the big concern is bleeding, and that's pretty much it. Well, should, do you think that in the clinical setting and routine practice, the exon line mutation should be looked at in all patients, and is well, it available everywhere no. prior to um, starting treatment? The simple answer is yes, it probably could or should, but I know that's not going to be. In fact, as part of this registry of data we're collecting through Novartis, only 3% of physicians get mutational testing. Again, if you had a fairly low risk for being exon 9 situation, a gastric primary or non-small bowel, I'm not sure you have to do it at all. And it's hard because there are only about three labs that are, I think, doing it reliably right now. If you have somebody with a small bowel primary, metastatic disease, I actually would recommend doing it. For one thing, you don't want to just blindly put those people on 800. It is a much more toxic dose. It is occasionally a lethal dose, and you don't want to do it unless you have to. But if I had a small bowel primary, metastatic disease, I would ship the specimen off and have it done. They are trying to, again, develop this exon 9, yes or no. Again, it won't tell you which exon they have, but whether they have 9 is the important question. And I would do it in those settings, maybe a rectal primary as well, as you heard about. I've been telling patients with high risk, all sites high risk, to get tested up front because they have the data then. 
Well, right, the problem is they come back 10 years later when they recur, and you can't always get tissue all that easily, and it's true. Yeah. That's Chris's I mean, official recommendation is to get it when you can, but I know most people aren't going to. What kind of complications are seen at the higher dose, and what was the fatal complication? So there was liver toxicity, among others. There were life-threatening bleeds, although I don't think anybody actually died of it. One of the things we have discovered is even if you had an Exxon 9 patient, you wouldn't just pop them on 800 because then at least two-thirds of the patients go off it. That was shown in the European trial. You want to still give them 400 for a couple of weeks or even a month, ease up to 600 for a couple of weeks, and then go up to 800. And then most people can do it, in my experience. Tom? I had two questions. What about the prognosis by site? Is it very enough to affect treatment recommendations or the location of the primary? So it affects the risk of recurrence and might have you pull the trigger in the adjuvant setting, yes or no. It's softly prognostic in the days pre-imatinib, but I'm not sure that in the days when we have an effective drug, it's as prognostic as it used to be, and Brian, again, can comment better than I can on that. Yeah, I, mean, I don't think it's a strong Stomach predictor. just tends to right. harbor more low-grade or low-risk tumors, but they can all be risk-stratified, and the criteria works, so... I've had several patients that have symptomatic anemia on Gleevec. How common is that? Actually, how I'm glad you ma- brought that up because I made a mental note and here. And how do you manage that. that? Especially in the neoadjuvant use, you have to be a little careful. So all the early trials of imatinib had bleeding complications. And they ran about 5% or so. And they were actually evenly split between people who had major league tumor responses and bled, kind of like a high-grade lymphoma melting down and tearing away from the bowel wall. And again, most people don't die from that, but you have to be aware of it and take them to surgery. And then the drug itself is sort of toxic to mucosa, and they can actually get ulceration and bleed. So one of the big worries when somebody was going to get it neoadjuvantly was already bleeding is, are you going to make them bleed more? I have to say that really hasn't happened in my experience. We always warn the patient, but it just doesn't occur for some reason. That's what I was worried about with this gentleman, but it did not happen. He got better. So the anemia is from bleeding? I mean, there's probably some element of chronic disease, but it's most, they bleed. They just bleed and bleed and bleed. So why isn't that a worry with the bevacizumab trial? Oh, it is a worry. But that said, on the, at least the phase one, two studies, it didn't happen for whatever reason. But it's definitely a theoretical worry. We haven't discussed it yet, but it always comes up. Is what do you think about the Exxon 9 mutations, treating them with sunitinib up front versus imatinib? Because there's indications that Exxon 9s actually respond. Right. They're one of the genetic subsets that responds very Absolutely. favorably to sunitinib. And True. I was in Japan recently, and I got sort of nailed with that question a bunch of times. Well, so the question really is, what's the toxicity profile of sunitinib versus imatinib 800? Right. Because that's what it comes down yep. to. And we still, all that data is still second-line data. Yep. And not to say that it would be any different in primary setting, but it might be. So I would still prefer to treat those people with higher dose of imatinib and then salvage them with sunitinib. Okay, and I think everybody else is yeah. kind of on the same agreement at this it's point. It's amazing that no one is testing sunitinib up front, but they're just not... Yeah, we were speculating this morning what an upfront trial comparing sunitinib and imatinib would show. What do you think it would show? I think it would probably be fairly equivalent, but with different subsets benefiting a lot more from one drug or the other, and obviously a very different toxicity profile. The other setting that's been brought up in is the adjuvant setting. But there it makes even less sense to me because, again, we have very few things that work adjuvantly that haven't been tested directly in metastatic disease up front. So... It doesn't make any sense to give people who are potentially curable a very toxic drug in my mind. 